This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. First and foremost, before we get into the body of the program, a uh, quick mention. Um, I had a very happy birthday to the love of my life, my wife Rebecca, who's celebrating a birthday today. And uh, we'll uh, celebrate it as a family and then go to one of our fine Hamilton establishments for dinner later on tonight. But uh, happy birthday, Rebecca. The city of Hamilton will not be pushing through a request to study about the feasibility of turning Gore Park into a protected heritage district. Things got a little uh, hectic at the planning meeting yesterday. Jason Farr is the counselor for that area, of course, for downtown and Ward 2. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Jason, how are you doing this morning? Very good, and happy birthday to Rebecca Wizens. I bet you she's not taking the day off, though. Uh, no, she's not. She's already at work already. Got there. She, she leaves not too long after I do. A dedicated mm. lawyer in town. And, uh, and and actually kind of a constituent of yours, since her office is in your area, too. And as famous as you are. Well, <laughs> more so, more so. But I digress. Yeah. Uh, listen, I, I was interested in watching the debate and, and what was going on at the meeting yesterday uh, about this potential for designation. Uh, I mean, heritage designations for areas of the city are not a new concept, but it was uh, kind of a, a, a 11th hour thing to try to get this done at the Gore, wasn't it, yesterday? Yeah, it was uh, a bit of a movement from the same folks who uh, valiantly worked uh, to uh, get the word out on uh, making an effort to save uh, two of the uh, buildings uh, now set uh, after a council compromise for demolition uh, between 18 and 28 uh, King Street in the Gore. And, of course, you followed that for some five years, and we talked about it many times. So um, there was a, an email campaign, and... Uh, I believe a uh, concerted effort on their part to uh, engage with the Heritage Committee to uh, try uh, sort of a second installment in, in that effort in, in declaring the entire area a Heritage Conservation District bill. Which uh, would have had, well, in my mind, some rather serious uh, consequences if, if they had gone through with this yesterday. Well, we kind of, uh, we, 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 uh, uh, wrapped up the uh, segment in the agenda by asking staff exactly what are those consequences and uh, specific to a two-part motion, uh, the one part asking staff to actually investigate past uh, um, engagement sessions with four different, possibly four, I know for sure three, uh, proponents of developments that are in various stages in the Gore District as we speak. So you have Spalach. You have uh, Kresge's, uh, you know, the former Bingo Hall mm -hmm. and, and Leuna High Rise, Spalachi with the Royal Connaught and that five phase development. Obviously, a council resolution this term of council on the five properties uh, at the Gore, and even one that isn't talked about a lot but is imminent, and that's uh, a three story addition at the corner of Houston and King uh, and a project brought to you by Effort Trust where they're looking to relocate their home office to the center of our city, and it's been a very exciting uh, project. So, Three of those four proponents at various stages I know have appeared in the past, whether this term or past term of council, to the Heritage Committee and essentially developed a way forward, whether formally or informally. And I think staff needs to first take a look at exactly how those engagement sessions went with the Heritage Committee. What was the way forward? How would a Heritage Conservation District affect the progress uh, of those projects. So I think that's a very important question to answer. Well, from a, a, a technical standpoint, and we, we don't want to get too technical into the Planning Act, etc., but it, it put, to put a designation on this, first of all, staff can't just slap one on. You guys can't just pass a motion to council and say, yeah, there it is. There's got to be reports done about this. Uh, I'm told that could take another two or three years, which in my mind puts a lot of those projects you just talked about all the way back to square one. Right, Bill. And so that's part two of the motion, and I'm glad you brought that up, where we ask, what, what, what is the timeline? What is the scope of work? How does it compare to current conditions uh, with respect to how we uh, navigate and negotiate around the uh, historic facades and the historic buildings in the Gore? And what are the costs? We had some preliminary um, uh, answers in committee yesterday. Could take up to two years, could be up to $200,000 in, in consulting fees initially and may mean more staff, but let's get that uh, those definitive answers as well. And so that was part two of the motion. So so uh, expediting this, moving it through uh, quickly as one of the amendments, which was uh, not brought forward, it wasn't voted on uh, by Councillor Aidan Johnson, who is also a Heritage uh, Advocate and, and member of the Heritage Committee, that asked for uh, this to be expedited, and it's a celebration of the uh, Canada 150, which really only sees about seven, eight months remaining, 
uh, would have been a challenge anyway. Here's the thing. <laughs> Not unlike another debate uh, you're having at Council these days about another major project, which uh, shall remain nameless for this conversation anyway. Thank you. I, I think there's an awful lot of people in the city that are just saying, look, can we get on with this? We've debated this. I know not everybody's happy with the compromise, but we just want to get the downtown going again. We want to get Gore Park going again. Uh, we want to encourage investment in that area again. You've got a plan. Let's stick to it. Yeah, and, and to that end, I think we've been successful. I mean, we are days away from site plan for the Gore building. And you'll remember that compromise included, you don't get to demolish anything until you have a site plan and you're ready to go with the facade restoration on the more uh, historic pieces. So that, that's been very much in play, and that was part of the compromise and part of the motion moving forward that was near unanimously accepted by council. Then you have a five-phase, very significant development. In fact, in, uh, the second phase of move-in comes this weekend with uh, uh, Spalacci and Valerie and the five-phase Royal Connaught development, an extremely important development in the Gore uh, on the easterly side and the southeasterly side, quite obviously. We've seen the cranes. We've seen all of the action. People are already starting to move in, which is great for the vitality, great for the downtown. They appeared a couple of times before Heritage Committee the last term of council and, and said, you know, we have no problem discussing and, and contemplating a, a heritage designation on the heritage features of our, our two main phases, the first two phases, following the development, following the five-phase five phase development. And that was agreed upon. Then you have, uh, more recently, Leona High Rise making a, an announcement at a recent uh, ribbon cutting when they were beginning their 22-story uh, graduate tower on James Street. Uh, the the uh, Leona representative saying we're also going to be looking in the future at bringing some density, uh, bringing uh, some concepts, some wonderful uh, concepts as it relates to the vitality and rejuvenation at that long dormant and uh, historic uh, uh, Kresge site. So there's some exciting stuff happening there, and they've met twice now with the Heritage Committee as well and, and been working in good faith, for lack of a better term, with the Heritage Committee. So, so, so it's, it, and all of these represent what you're talking about, this progress. There's movement, and the last thing we want to do is slow progress and slow the movement, but also, and, and, and this is most important, and, and I don't want to lose uh, focus on the fact that we, we still have in place a registry of buildings of interest. So we have a 60-day registry before you can demolish anything. We have OPs that distinguish and, and recognize the, the heritage attributes, and we have you know, planning and heritage planning staff that, that all of the proponents I just mentioned have been working with closely. So it's not like we're just ignoring heritage altogether. There are programs, there are policies in place. Uh, bringing in a heritage conservation district essentially would start us at the beginning, and I think you're right. Most people probably would like to see us continue doing what we're doing with the programs and the policies in place, but not overlooking the fact that there are advocates out there who we all appreciate, if it weren't for them, maybe councils of the past or future would ignore heritage or not pay as close attention to heritage if it weren't for those uh, folks who are vocal about the preservation of all heritage. And, and certainly they may not always be happy with compromises, but if it weren't for those, those voices, you, you wonder how much attention would be paid. And so there, there's a value to that, but hopefully they also understand that we, we need to continue with the momentum while we can continue with the momentum and, and we'll never keep our eye off the prize of, uh, of uh, the growth and the rejuvenation that's happening and trying to assist wherever we can there while also paying attention to the heritage attributes. From a political standpoint, though, uh, you've got to respect the process, and I'm talking about everybody on city council. You have to re respect the process and respect the fact that council has made a decision and, and is moving forward on this as well. Like... <laughs> Yeah, to go back to some of the other contentious issues in the city, there are, there are still some people that don't think the expressway ever should have been built. Some people don't think the stadium should have been built where it is. Something and, and on and on, we can go with all sorts of other things like that. But it's at some point you got to move on and say, look, at I didn't agree with that, but the majority on council did. That's how they did it, and and you you deal with this. And uh, at some point you just have to say, look, at okay, I'm not crazy about this. I'd like to save every building. But at the same time, I know, because you've been on this program many times, talking about the number of different times that you've had to sit down with the proponents and with the staff and with heritage folks and try to find some sort of middle ground here. And I think you've done it. 
Uh, it may not be, like you say, the, the idea of a perfect compromise is you know, usually nobody's happy about it because everybody's thinking, well, I didn't really get what I want. But we've got to move forward at some point. I mean, this is the whole idea of, of downtown revitalization. At some point, you've got to take the bull by the horns, and I think you've done that. And, and you don't want people to, that are going to try to block the process with these 11th hour things. With, uh, with no. all due respect to their passion, I get that. But, Absolutely. you know, we've already dealt with this. It's over. Yeah, and I, and I completely agree. I probably don't even need to elaborate. You kind of said it all there. And it's as much a part as of uh, intestinal fortitude uh, and determination, Bill, as it is about also trying to respect all those views uh, and, and do it in a, um, a polite uh, and, and um, well-thought-out way. But under, and try to make each side of every argument understand that you do need to move forward. We can't. Uh, stall out uh, uh, the rejuvenation that's happening uh, based on, you know, um, something that, that could essentially take, in this case, two, three years. And I'll tell you, Bill, each and every proponent I spoke to called my office uh, when they heard about the resolution by the Heritage Committee, and it happened during March break, and by the Friday afternoon, I think I had recalled uh, speaking to all four of them and and suggesting you know I'm on the file uh, but, but they were concerned that's the point I'm trying to make and so and and they were concerned to the very point you're trying to make like, hey you know we've made a lot of progress here we've worked in good faith we've done a lot since uh, some at the beginning stages some well into their second phase for example the Royal Cannot some very close to site plan and they were very very worried worried about the progress being stalled. Look, at, you got to put this in perspective, too, and, and I know you know the history on this, but, uh, you know, going back to the late 90s when I started on city council, uh, and, and even before that, we did have landowners, developers uh, that would do stuff in the middle of the night. You know, they got their demolition permits, they were knocking down buildings, sometimes without permission, and it was it was kind of ugly. We're not there anymore. And and the people you've talked about, the proponents here, whether it's the Splatchies, whether it's the, uh, go down the list of the people, Luna and everybody else, they have a track record in this community now of being respectful of heritage and of trying to what, do what they can to preserve it in many cases. And and I, this is why I, I, I still don't understand why people just can't seem to understand that we're all on the same side here. It's just it's, it's variations exactly on how you want to get to where we're going to go. But, I mean, there there are no bad guys in this situation. Not not as it relates to the, the Gores. I, I, you know, that's I, what I mean, that's yeah. so true. There, there, there are four proponents that we've mentioned on a few occasions here in this 20 minutes, and, and all have acted in very good faith. And when I've asked that you please go speak to this committee or let's uh, better understand the argument coming from these advocates on the heritage side, they've never failed over whether it's five years or the last few months, whether you're talking about the, the, the Gore properties, 18 to 28, or the proposal by uh, Leona High Rise, which is, you know, in its infancy, but still very much moving forward, two occasions where they've already met with the Heritage Committee. They've been very open and very transparent and understanding of uh, all of the issues related to those on the advocacy side who would like everything to be completely restored inside and out. And some, and in many cases, as you say, some of these proponents have done that. Leuna with Leuna Station is a perfect example. Restoring the facades right now on that 22-story student tower project. Uh, as they said they would have done in the past. So they're acting in a transparent uh, way and in good faith. Rudy Spalacci as well, he didn't tear down the Royal Connaught. He's actually uh, gotten great value and worked a wonderful, I hope everybody can work the same kind of performer as Spalacci and Valerie as it relates to the, the, the very brisk sales and the desirable units that he's created in a restored Royal Connaught. So it's working uh, and in some cases, we have these compromises, but uh, it's, 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 it's never failed to happen in a transparent, open way where the proponents are listening and are following through and following up. Got about a minute left here. You've asked staff to come back and give you some information on this. What's the, the time frame that we can actually put this thing to bed finally? I'm not certain. We didn't, ask, we didn't uh, put a time frame on the motion. Uh, there was an appendix uh, uh, that I read through from our heritage planner with respect to the motion that inevitably failed from Heritage Committee to create this Gore Conservation District. Uh, there was a lot of answers and information in, in that uh, report because I believe it was asked for some month and a half ago. So they'll be able to extract some of the things we're looking for. I don't expect it will take 
too long. And of course, there's also the fact I didn't bring it up as much as the uh, some of my colleagues on the I think Pearson and Collins on the planning committee yesterday. But there is a cost factor, and quite clearly, you've been covering uh, uh, broadly and uh, specifically all of our many budget issues. Uh, so, if there's staffing components that need to be waded through, if we were to proceed, or costs from an operational standpoint. Uh, obviously, we're in a in a you know a sticky place right now with the budget just wrapping up, with with uh, job losses that have been part of this budget process that haven't been part of budget process in the past. So it's a, that 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 alone would be a tough sell, and that's why we put the cost in there as well. The timing might not be great for rushing into a heritage conservation district, whether it's Gore or anywhere else in the city at this point, and adding to the seven conservation districts we already have at this point in time. It may be it, it may be a tough sell, but you know I never like to predict where my counselor colleagues would go. Uh, that's wise, very wise. Uh, <laughs> downtown Councilor Jason Fire, Jay. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it today. Happy birthday, Rebecca. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. Just to set the record straight, it's not really a mountain. Okay, we call it Hamilton Mountain. It's not a mountain. It's the escarpment. But we still affectionately refer to it. And and there's a problem, obviously, with the, the access routes up the mountain. There's a number of them here in the city. And at various times over the last little while, uh, they've had to be closed down. They've had to be repaired. What's going on? Is it, well, there's a geological reason for it, and we're going to get into that in a couple of seconds. But whatever's going on there is certainly having an impact on the city's budgets over the last little while, especially in public works. Dan McKinnon, the general manager of public works, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Dan. How are you doing today? Doing well, Bill. How are you? Good. Is it my imagination, or is this a particularly rough year for for all of the escarpment uh, crossings these days? It just seems as you had the Sherman access, and, and where, do I need to bring up the Claremont? I mean, on and on it goes. It just seems as if it seems to be happening mo- with more frequency than it has in the past. Well, that, that's certainly my impression too, and I don't know that we fully understand why there seems to be more activity in this regard, but. Uh, you know, one of the, the theories that I, I think is out there is, is a couple of years ago, we had two extraordinarily cold winters. And um, generally what we're talking about when we have issues with the escarpment face is just the, the, the surface of it itself, because that's where the all the erosion takes place. And um, so it's uh, the last few years, we're starting to see a lot more deterioration of those areas. So, Well, and, and two of the smaller ones, I guess, one of the Queen Street Hill or Becca Drive, depending on, on which end of it, I guess, you, you, you want to talk about or even the West Fifth Hill, which is a rather short one as well, that had to have some remediation done uh, a few years ago, just before it had the World Cycling Championships. It got to the point after a while, Dan, that the erosion on the side was so bad that it just kept moving the yellow line at the edge of the road over, and it was, it was getting pretty tight in there. I mean, I, I understand this is nat- natural for this thing to be happening in a situation like this, but it is uh, it is rather precarious, and it's rather costly for your department, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. And Forgive me, I'm getting a bit of feedback here on my phone, but... Uh, I could tell you what the Claremont access, we, we spent about $1.3 million just responding to the event that happened over the last few months and um, with the Sherman access. And we also have some work planned for the 50 road access. Each of those projects are going to cost about $2.5 million as well. Claremont's a rather unique uh, situation because it's, it's the most recent one. Of course, it was constructed, as you talked to us before, back in the early 70s, I guess, is when it was finally completed. The other ones, Dan, have uh, been around for a while, and some suggest that they're really just kind of old wagon trails that were kind of converted and paved over. Uh, I, the question I was going to ask you was, if we had to do it all over again, is that the way you would design these roads? Well, I, I think it is because, you know, to, to avoid these types of events, you probably have to build pretty much a bridge descending the, uh, the escarpment, and that would be extraordinarily expensive. So I don't think that's a, a real option for the city. So we do the best we can with the designs that we have along the, uh, the escarpment faces now. But there's no question that many of these passages just started as uh, probably as goat paths a long time ago and then just kind of evolved over time. Yeah, whether it's the Jolly Cut or any of the other ones that uh, that we can talk about as crossings. And uh, for some of the older members of our listening audience, they can probably remember the uh, the days of the old hairpin turn uh, before the Clement access was there. You used to have to go down Upper James and half it, it actually ended at where the Jolly Cut is, and there was a stoplight there, and you had to make a, a hairpin turn off to the right uh, to go the rest of the way down the mountain. So, and, and that's obviously an old wagon trail. And I know if you look and if you're hiking along the side of the escarpment sometime, you can actually see where there was actually some old rail trails uh, that would go back up the escarpment uh, halfway down 
uh, those accesses too. So th- uh, things have changed a little bit, but it certainly had an impact on, on your budgets. Now, how when you're looking forward on this, and I know that as a manager you try very hard to, to try to, to develop plans. You can't do this just on an ad hoc basis every year. You've got to see what's happening and try to plan for that. Given what's happening with the erosion and, and the changing landscape, literally, of, of these escarpments, how does that impact your budget of public works? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. We have to develop plans going forward. We do have a report coming to City Council uh, on May the 1st to specifically focus on um, the Claremont access and what's going to be happening there going forward. Likely we'll have to develop a capital project that would be submitted to Council likely for the 2019 capital pro- uh, program. Uh, but we do have 17 of these accesses, so it's it's a combination of proactively inspecting them on a regular basis, doing regular maintenance, and with those proactive inspections, just kind of watching what's happening uh, so that we can get ahead of these things. Uh, you know, one of my colleagues uh, talks about infrastructure, and it says, you know, you need to be listening so that you can hear it whisper, because if you don't, you'll hear it when it shouts at you, and that's probably <laughs> what happened uh, with the Claremont access, because, um, um, you know, maybe we just... Uh, need to be more proactive with our inspections but some of these things are also difficult to predict so um it's 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 a regular thing that we're doing um out there looking at them to see how the uh the face of the escarpment is changing and whether or not it's having any adverse effects on these accesses this is something that's rather unique to hamilton i mean i know there are other communities that that have uh, you know different aspects i mean yeah just well, even over in dundas you look at sydenham hill but which is a kind of a different thing from an arc, uh, an engineering standpoint than what we have for something like the jolly cat but it, it does have a major impact. I mean, when you're doing your budgets every year and the city's trying to wrestle with deficits and concerns and, and cost overruns and all sorts of things that are floating through their heads as you guys are going through the discussions, uh, it costs more to clear snow in this city because we have an escarpment. It costs more to get up and down there. The road maintenance is more expensive than it would be in some other cities. It's, uh, it's, it's a real challenge for your department. Yeah, it sure is. And, and as you know, Bill, my background is the water. I, I looked yeah. up to the water department for division for several years, and you can just imagine what it's like to pump water up the escarpment. It takes a heck of a lot of energy. So while it's a, it's a very uh, you know beautiful uh, uh, geographical attribute, and it's unique to, to Hamilton, it certainly creates a lot of challenges for us when it comes to municipal infrastructure. There's no question. Let's talk about uh, potential danger here and, and, and the hazards. Uh, it, erosion's one thing to say, yeah, we have to wear, shore this up or there's the retaining wall, but we got falling rocks. And, and the, I remember that, you know, there used to be signs up there, beware of falling rocks, and it was a real concern. I hardly, hardly ever saw it, but it seems once again, maybe because of that water that you were talking about, that we seem to be seeing more of an incidence of that. How do you, how do you build protections into your, your budgets and how do you do things with these escarpments? Because each one of them seems rather unique in its own way. Uh, to try to to mitigate the impact of, and potential danger. Well, there's a few tactics that you can take uh, to approach that, and one of them is the the regular maintenance that we do. The scaling is to try to, on an annual basis, get rid of that loose rock and identify where there might be some of that loose rock. So uh, we do that on an annual basis to try to make sure that uh, any of the loose material that's there, we take it down in a, in a controlled way. Uh, in addition to that, we're, uh, people will see that we're going to be uh, building a rock fence, or they've, they've probably already seen we built a rock fence along the uh, the Claremont so that after we've done the scaling, if there is uh, more loose material so that if it does fall, it gets uh, attenuated by the fence and can't make its way out to the uh, to the road. Um, I, I don't know that we will return to the design of having bin walls like like we currently have on the, on the, um, the face of the escarpment there, just because they're... We're learning more about those over the last decade or so that um, maybe that's not the best strategy for us to use. But uh, So it's a combination of capital works and infrastructure that you build, but also regular operating uh, and maintenance activities that can uh, to keep the road safe. If you make that determination that that's maybe not the best way to go, is the possibility then that the existing walls are going to be removed? Uh, that, that's that's possible. Um, our, our geotech engineers are looking at what's the best uh, move going forward. Whenever we build infrastructure, we always looked at uh, what's the optimal uh, answer for what's going to provide the greatest amount of value for the least amount of money. So through their analysis, if they determine that taking all the bin walls down and taking a different approach is going to be the least expensive and pri- provide the greatest value, then we would go in that direction. But I think at this point it's too early to know specifically what's going to happen on the Claremont. The uh, the Sherman access was just closed uh, for a little while. And my understanding is it's back open again, but there's still some work that's being done there. Uh, as you go down the Sherman Access, uh, Dan, just uh, before you decide whether you're going to turn left or right there, uh, you, you've got these nettings up there, uh, which I, I believe was done around the same time as the construction of the Jervinsky Hospital, the reconstruction of the Jervinsky Hospital. Uh, those are permanent now, are they? 
for now. Um, and, and what they do is they just try to get have any material that does become loose and fall away just to keep it close to the, uh, the face as it makes its way to the ditch. Um, over the years, we've used different strategies there as well. We've used shotcrete and some other uh, some other ways to try to stabilize the the face. But uh, um, we're going to continue to try different things so we can see which is the most effective. But uh, yeah, currently in the in the deep cut there, as you go uh, straight towards the escarpment face, the the netting is there and that'll be there for a while. Yeah, and the other things that well you just mentioned is that stuff that they've sprayed across on their uh, on the the wall faces. I mean that's pretty hard stuff. One thing you do get though is is from a perspective standpoint is uh, the amount of water that, that uh, we have. I mean, we talk about living in the Red Hill Valley here and, and the, the, the watershed. Uh, but when you look at the, the face of the escarpment, and, and, and you've talked to us about this before with, with regards to the Claremont access, the number of underground streams, et cetera, that are having an impact on this is, is remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it certainly becomes evident when you when you travel down those accesses because you can see it, and especially in the wintertime when it freezes and you can see the big icicles hanging there. And uh, I think that just, you know, really helps you appreciate the freeze-thaw cycle and, and keeping in mind those two cold winters we have, uh, you know, the the, um, the freeze-thaw cycle can really fracture a lot of those rock faces and make them unstable. Dan, uh, good luck with this. It's a real challenge and, uh, as we say, something unique to Hamilton, but uh, certainly something that we're going to have to account for. I appreciate the time this morning. My pleasure, Bill, anytime. Dan McKinnon, General Manager of Public Works, of course, for the City of Hamilton. So what's going on with the the escarpment, or the mountain as we call it? What is happening from a geological standpoint? And, and you know, I asked myself this question, and all of a sudden I was just back in my mind. It was in grade 12 geography once again, but Mr. Hall at South Mount Secondary teaching us all about eskers and glacial forms and what was happening. And, and, and it's remarkable. You know, it's one thing to actually learn some of this stuff in, in a geography class, but then he said, basically, just go outside because we're living in it. It's happening. And it's, uh, he told us back in those days, you know, you think that everything is stabilized here. It's not. Uh, there's some interesting things happening here. Joining us to talk about that is Carolyn Isles, who is a professor of School of Geography and Earth Sciences, Director of Integrated Sciences Program at McMaster University. Uh, Carolyn, first of all, thanks for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Great to be here. As, as I said, just, I, I feel like I'm in my grade 12 geography class all over again, learning about glacial formations. Uh, well, and, and maybe the thing that we need to remind ourselves about first and foremost is the Earth is ever-changing, isn't it? Absolutely. It's uh, constantly in motion, and, uh, and our Earth's surface is uh, always, it's a very dynamic surface, and that's what makes it so interesting. I mean, it, it looks to us, you know, if you've been in Hamilton all your life, or even just, that, that everything is just sitting there. But, uh, but there, there is movement. There are things happening. I don't just necessarily mean rocks falling off, but the rocks are falling off for a reason. Uh, talk to us about the escarpment itself and what's going on there. Well, it's interesting. The escarpment, uh, the rocks in the escarpment are quite old. They're about somewhere between 400 and 500 million years old. So they're, they're very old rocks. But the escarpment itself as a, a feature, as a landform, is very young. And uh, on a geological timescale, it's, uh, it's extremely young and it's, it's still forming today as we speak. So the escarpment is, um, it's a result really of some, some very hard resistant rocks which, uh, are quite strong and they, they, they resist erosion, they're sitting at the top of the escarpment and they kind of protect the rocks underneath. And as the, uh, the erosion is going on, it's, it's actually the escarpment is eroding slowly to the southwest all of the time. And as this is occurring, we get uh, some of the underlying rocks uh, become eroded and they weaken the, uh, the, the surface rocks or what we call the cap rocks. Um, of the, uh, the uppermost part of the escarpment, and it gradually eats its way backwards. The same thing's happening at Niagara Falls, where we see the, uh, the water going over the Niagara River, going over the falls. So it's gradually eating its way back into Lake Erie there, too. So <laughs> it's moving to the southwest. So essentially, uh, in, in a couple of hundred million years, I guess, uh, this is going to go all the way back towards London. Absolutely. Yeah, it's probably come from somewhere near Kingston originally, and it's moved its way through Toronto, and it's on its way back towards London, yes. Who, f who knew? I mean, <laughs> well, you did, obviously, <laughs> but, but it, it, it's remarkable, though, to know that this is, uh, I mean, we, all, we know that, you know, the Earth is a living, breathing planet, and that, that there are always changes going on. But you know, a lot of the time when we started talking about glacial action and the impact that that had and, and, and the impact it's left on the landscape here, we tended to think, yeah, that happened a long time ago, and this is what we're left with. Now, it, this is happening as we're standing here. 
Absolutely, and there's all sorts of other things. I mean, we, we look at some of the uh, the features around us that are a remnant of the, the glaciers that were here. I mean, they only left us about uh, 10, uh, well, 11, 12,000 years ago. And that's, re- that's really recent in geologic terms. So we're still recovering in some ways from some of that glacial influence. Um, for example, our land surface is still rising up slightly after the weight of all that ice is being un- unloaded. So we're still actually experiencing a little bit of uplift in, a, on, in the area around here in Hamilton. So there's all sorts of things going on that we, uh, we don't realize really on our human life, life kind of span, but uh, they will have effects on us, yes. The things that we just consider to be, well, part of the, the environment around here in the landscape, uh, Dundas being in the valley, uh, the, the water down escarpment, etc., uh, that's all the result of glacial action, isn't it? Yeah, a lot of it is. Um, in fact, most of it is, is a combination. Things like the Dundas Valley is a, a huge valley. Um, it's a very deep valley. If we if we look at um, where the, the bedrock is, the rock that we see is exposed in the escarpment, we know that that goes down beneath the uh, Dundas Valley by at least 180 meters. So it's a very deep valley that's been carved out probably by, partly by glaciers, but partly by rivers as well similar to the Niagara River that we see today. It, now, every now and then, since we're talking about geological uh, uh, figures and, and the things that can happen to us here as we're watching this, every now and then we'll get an earth tremor here. And uh, it, it scares the daylights out of us. Uh, I've got some friends who live in Southern California, and they look at that like a, a cloudy day. They have the mirror all the time. But yeah. you don't expect it to be here. But is, is that the result of this movement that you've always been talking about, that this, this constant shifting and, and, as you say, the earth moving up and, and, and actually the escarpment moving back? Is that what's going on there? Well, it's, it's interesting because we as a, a continent, the whole continent of North America is actually moving westward at a rate of about 2.7 centimeters a year. So we're, we are gradually moving westward. Um, because this is the, the Atlantic Ocean is still opening, um, so it's still we're still separating away from Europe, um, and we move by about, as I say, almost three centimeters per year, and that movement is causing some stresses underneath um, our our continent, and those stresses build up over time, and they can get released um, to the surface as earthquakes, and one of the interesting things to um, that we look at, actually, is um, the way that the North American continent is actually being constructed. And it's made of lots of smaller pieces of continent that have all been brought together by plate tectonics. And where we are in Hamilton, we're on some of the the boundaries between some of these older plates. And um, any movement or any of those stresses that get released as we're moving slowly westward tend to get focused along those boundaries. And so as geologists, we have to be very uh, aware of where those boundaries are because those are the places where we might expect major earthquakes to occur in the future. It's, it's, it's fascinating to actually understand this and then get the dynamic. I mean, you know, we hear a story about earth movement or tremors or things of this nature, and you, you wonder what's causing it, but there's, there's always something that's going on. Now, if we're moving, as, as a North American continent, if we're moving slowly but surely to the west, uh, what about the other continents? What about uh, what about uh, Europe and, and, and Asia? Are they moving as well? Is there something going on here in, on a global scheme? Yes. I mean, all of the plates, the, the Earth is basically divided up into a series of uh, what we call plates, um, and they're constantly in motion relative to each other. So, for example, the, the Atlantic Ocean is still opening, and hence we're moving to the west. The Pacific open, uh, Ocean is closing somewhat. And so it's getting smaller over time. Uh, and we know that we have lots of earthquakes and also volcanoes around the Pacific Ocean. And that's partly a result of the fact that the, the ocean is getting smaller. Um, so all of the continents on the planet are moving somewhat. And we now have the technology um, with GPS and satellite imagery where we can actually measure these movements. And it's quite fascinating to see it's really like a... It's almost like a dance of the continents on the surface uh, as they move in relation to each other. So when we wonder about what's happening with falling rock on the escarpment faces here in Hamilton, it's all part of a grand plan, isn't it? 
It surely is. And it's interesting because the, the escarpment, I think, and, and the activity on the escarpment is a reminder to us that uh, these processes are going on because we don't detect the movement of three centimeters per year to the west. We don't know about that. But we can see things happening on the escarpment that are more understandable to us because they, they're happening on our time scale. And so we can see pieces of rock breaking off and that eventually that process is going to lead to, as you said before, the escarpment slowly moving back to London over time. So in a couple of hundred million years, this is going to be London's problem, not Hamilton's. Absolutely. But they, have, <laughs> they have a, a gorgeous landform or a beautiful landscape that they can be proud of. There you go. Carolyn, thanks so much for the time. It's great having you on the show today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Take care. Carolyn Isles, a professor of uh, School of Geography and Earth Sciences at McMaster University. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, as we speak, uh, there are uh, meetings going on at Hamilton City Hall right now to try to deal with the poverty issue in this city. Yesterday, of course, at the convention center, uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger kicked off his uh, anti-poverty initiative uh, with a day-long conference that was there. Uh, and uh, the numbers are staggering and, and frightening, quite frankly. According to Hamilton Food Share, about 80% of food bank users, and that number is going up too, by the way, 80% of food bank users in the city are spending half of their household income towards rent. Just think of how sustainable that is, or unsustainable, I guess, more to the point. Deirdre Pike joins us, Senior Social Planner with the Social Planning and Research Council here in Hamilton. Uh, Deirdre, thanks for the time. I have probably pulled you right out of the city council meeting, have I? That's exactly what happened. I've just run across the street from city council where... Uh, Sarah Mayo and Don Jaffrey from the SPRC were just presenting to council, and I'm now at the convention center uh, waiting to facilitate a living wage panel at 11 o'clock. So I have a few minutes to squeeze in here. Good. Well, I'm glad you've got some time with us. Let's talk a little bit about these numbers and, and some of the pressures this is causing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, the, the numbers used to be, you know, when I went away to uh, uh, university and then moved out on my own, my parents told me, uh, never spend more than 30% of your income on rent. And, um, and those numbers, I mean, they still, uh, uh, CMHC will, will use that number kind of as a bottom line, but there's so few people hitting the 30%. I mean, any of you listening, uh, you know, figure it out for yourselves, you know, depending on where you're at in life, you know, whether you're able to, to sustain that. Um, but, uh, and now we're looking at 50% is, you know, it puts you on the verge of homelessness, if you spend more than 50% of your income on uh, your rent or, or home uh, ownership and utilities. And then imagine now that we have this many spending 80%, that, this, that we've had to change the scale so much um, you know, over the course of a couple of decades. Uh, it's a very scary place. And um, you know, to, uh, to, to be without a roof over your head, to be choosing between food and rent uh, is no place for anybody to be uh, choosing, and especially in a climate where, if, if you did have to face homelessness, if it was even temporary, um, uh, the, the fact is that the supports and shelter system out there is inadequate uh, for particular demographics in our community. So we wouldn't even be able to meet the needs if all of a sudden the scale started tipping even more. Do you remember well, there have been some different things that we've had to do along the way to try to create awareness for these sorts of things? And I remember one time to, to deal with some of the third world poverty issues and, and uh, hunger. Uh, some member back in high school, they used to have these uh, starvathons where you wouldn't eat for 12 hours or 14 mm-hmm. hours or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and you think, boy, this is tough. Oh, and you, but you got through it. Put yourself in that position and say every day is like that. Uh, and, and, you know, the numbers, when you say well, people are spending 60, 70, 80 percent of their, their income on rent, th- forget about that in the abstract. Try to do that yourself. Think of how much you make and say, okay, I, here's $1,000, okay? 800 of that has to go to rent. That leaves you $200 to buy groceries, to pay for your utilities, uh, to, do, to live, essentially, uh, maybe to buy a new shirt if that's what you need. It's not sustainable. It's ridiculous. It's not sustainable at all, and the $1,000 sounds like a luxury bill because... Uh, yeah, so I, I just use that as a round number, yeah. I, I know you did, and, and that's great. And wouldn't it be great to be able to say, that's the baseline. The lowest amount that people are bringing in in our community is $1,000 a month, and sadly, that's not even the case if you're a single person on ODSP or Ontario Works. So, um, uh, you know, so in so many cases, that's, that just shows how inadequate it was. But, you know, one of the best things we ever did when you talk about that in terms of changing the conversation, especially with leaders, is we had, uh, I remember Terry Cook, Hussein Hamdani, and uh, Carol Wood, a chaplain at McMaster, eat a food bank diet for a week. 
eat a food bank diet for a week. They got, I, I remember them to get it, picking up their basket uh, at St. Matthew's house. And, and what an impact that had on them. The realization that how they, so little participation in community life, like they just couldn't participate because so much of it has to do with food or, um, you know, how you're feeling. They didn't feel good. All of that is something that I think we need to, to consider. And so, um, you know, today to uh, to hear this uh, to hear this report come out to hear uh, you know SBRC just released a report just announcing it right now, um, talking about the amount of time Hamiltonians are spending in poverty is uh, eight years. I mean, I know you spoke to Sarah about that yesterday. So um, you know this uh, you know this cycle is it's not a thing that we can see ending really quickly, and there needs to be some investment. And uh, again, this mayor's investment today. Could could be something that uh, will point us in the right direction. It won't will never be enough, but it'll point us in the right direction if council agrees to it. Yeah, well, uh, we went through this dance a couple of weeks ago with the living wage debate, and council yeah. gave it that, that a thumbs down. Uh, yeah. And and I guess they don't connect the dots. I guess they don't understand that there's a correlation between how much you make and and how 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 your quality of life is going to be impacted by that. Yeah, well, clearly, you know, even even their their understanding of. Um, their own part-time workers, that somehow these are people living in the lap of luxury and choosing, oh, well, wouldn't it be quaint to have a part-time job just on the side to, you know, so I can buy that, you know, fur coat I'm waiting for or something. I just have no idea how it is that their own workers they're not uh, seeing as valuable enough to pay a living wage to. So it does make me, uh, you know, fear for uh, the disconnect in that conversation. You know, if uh, this food share report could uh, have any impact, but I mean, I just... um, again, sitting in council, heard, uh, you know, a report go forward around tax, you know, helping people file their taxes from Tom Cooper and Mary Long. And, and the question that, uh, or, you know, really the, the direction that Donna Skelly sent that was, uh, well, this is a federal, uh, federal responsibility. We have to stop pointing around about whose responsibility it is and take it as our own. Well, it's not a federal responsibility. Income tax is a federal responsibility, yes. But looking after the, the, the well-being of our citizens in this city is our responsibility. And, and maybe that's the message that's not resonating at City Hall yet. Is it, we, Y'all have to pick up, because I've heard this from other councillors too. Well, you know, we've increased our, uh, our social service budgets by 2%. It's not enough. When you see statistics like this, it's not enough. I don't care what you're spending on it. It's not working. There's not enough social, uh, public housing, affordable housing. There's too many people that are still using food banks. There's too many people right now that don't even have a roof over their heads. It's not enough. And you've got to stop this idea. That, well, it's the Fed's fault. No, it's the province's fault. It's everybody's fault. It's everybody's fault, and uh, you know the fact that we're turning away three to four hundred women a month. There isn't even space in shelters. You know, like terrible stories for the kind. When you say that it's our responsibility to, you know, and city council's responsibility to care for the people in our community, how is it possible, uh, you know, that this is a caring response by leaving people, uh, leaving people on the streets? And so, um, you know, uh, acting now is has got to be the the uh, the only answer. And um, you know, the private sector, this conference that we're here for, uh, you know, these three days about business being engaged in this conversation. Uh, I led a workshop yesterday on women's homelessness with Catherine Kalinowski to all women and no business leaders. So tell me how the value went for that. I mean, it was empowering for the people who were there. It was a great workshop. But uh, again, it was preaching to the choir. Most of the women there had the lived experience of homelessness, for Pete's sake. Um, you know, they don't need me standing there, who has never had that, telling them what, uh, what's going on. Where are these uh, business leaders? And when I hear that, uh, you know, corporations like Maple Leaf are doing, uh, you know, getting lauded for um, certain um, movements that they're taking to respond to food security, which is really a charitable response to hunger, Let's do something like pay a living wage so that your workers uh, actually go home and can afford your product. That, to me, is a justice choice, not a charitable choice. And that's where we need to be. And here I am about to start another conversation 
uh, in a few minutes on living wage, and I sure hope the right people are in the room for this one. Well, if you can't appeal to people through altruism, I mean, there's a business case to be made for this. It's it's costing those people that aren't showing up and not paying attention. It's costing them more money. It means increased policing costs, increased medical costs, backlogs in hospital emergency rooms, uh, you know, and on and on it goes. It has a negative impact on our community by not doing something. I mean, you invest a buck to try to help somebody, it's going to come back threefold, four times. I mean, you guys have done the stats on that, and you know those numbers. Yeah. But they, they don't, don't seem think... to get that. There's a business case to be made for, for doing something here about this and, and lifting people up. You're right. And somehow, I don't know how we did, what did we miss in terms of communicating that to our own city council so that they could have chosen to be leaders in this conversation because now they don't even have the position to call on the businesses in our community to be living wage employers because they themselves turned it down. So we lack that kind of leadership here. And, uh, you know, that I, I, we just can't, we can't stand for that. And to have this report come out, the number of people who are on the tipping point of homelessness and who is using food banks, women who continue to be, you know, 80% of lone parent families are led by women. And those women make about $22,000 a year on average. Yes, for people who are, oh, but I know a man and he leads his own family too by himself. Yes, there are lone parent families led by men. That's clearly about 20%. But they make $44,000 a year on average, twice as much as what lone parent families on women. So you know who those numbers are accessing the food bank, and you know who the next in line is for homelessness. Deirdre, I know you've got to get to your seminar. I'll let you go. Thanks so much for this today. Do you think I'll have enough passion there? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Take care. Good call. talking Take with care. you again. Deirdre Pike, of course, from the Social Planning and Research Council. What is the impact on, on this community? Well, it's certainly having an impact on food banks. Joanne Santucci is the executive director of Hamilton Food Share, and she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us that perspective. Joanne, good to have you on the program again. How are you doing? Oh, Bill, hello. It's so nice to talk to you. Well, you've been a busy person, and I'm looking at some of the numbers here. Uh, first of all, we know food bank usage is up. Uh, we also know that, uh, as we were just talking about with Deirdre, 80% of Hamilton's roughly 20,000 20, food bank users are in this boat where they're spending more than half of their monthly income. You must hear some terrible stories from some of these people. You know, the stories in our in our, in our city are, are just heart-wrenching. And, and it wouldn't be as heart-wrenching if there was a way out. You know what I mean? I think uh, today is a way, when we talk about the Poverty Investment Fund, is, is a beginning of that way out. But uh, it's not going to help immediately. And I, and I think the food banks are doing their best they can to try to mitigate some of that uh, disparity between what they have and what they need. But it just seems to be growing. Well, you've told me years ago, your ultimate goal was to, to have... This, this community, this society, put you out of business so that one day you could go there and say, we don't need food banks anymore. We're good. Uh, I, we're think my, I think my words were to make the, the emergency food bank network obsolete so we're no longer needed. Yeah. And, 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 and that's what we're working towards. Yeah, but we seem to be backsliding. We are. And I, I think, you know, we've, there's so many anti-poverty measures going on, and I think if we can pass this one strategic plan, it's bold, it's brave, uh, and I think it's the, the cornerstone of actually looking down the road the next 20 years of how can we start to eliminate poverty uh, entirely from our community. But first, you know, if people don't have a home, if you, if, if you have the chaos in your life constantly, there's very little hope for change, you know what I mean? So if, if, if uh, we, we will continue with the, the policies that have to change, uh, you know, uh, rates for people on uh, OW, people on ODSP, that has to change, and that will always be at the top of our list. But we're also working on different layers of what else can diminish the effects of poverty for people as we work on a long-term strategy. And, and there's got to be some coordination. And, and I was just saying, and we've talked about this in the past, Joanne, there's way too much finger-pointing going on. Well, that's, you know, that's the Fed's job. But where's the Fed coming? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, the Fed's have to step up. The province has to step up. But the city has to do more as well. You can't simply sit back and say we've done enough. When you look at these numbers, clearly we haven't done enough. Well, I can say that the city is stepping up. I can say that they're they're trying to. They also have pressures and constraints. No excuses. I'm just saying today is a fifty million dollar fund to actually start to look at the the the, the, the beginning pieces of how to do that. I think it's absolute leadership. Uh, you know, I go across the province a lot and talk to a lot of food banks from different communities. They always say to me, "This is awesome. You're from Hamilton. What is going on in there?" 
we are seen as an example of a of an unbelievable city that cares for its 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 people. And I think the city's coming on board now. There there are so many other initiatives that are going on in the community. And I think if we could quell the chaos and and figure out a way to move them forward, every anti poverty organization, we can't do the same thing for the last twenty five years and expect something different to happen in the next twenty five. So we're looking at strategic planning. How can we provide a better uh, product and service for our agencies? How can we transform into other kind of entities that could really start to push the agenda of poverty uh, out of our communities? And as you found, as you've dealt with these people and these clients and these families that have had to to, to go to the, the many food banks here in this community over the number of years, Joanne, uh, th- first of all, this can happen to anybody. Secondly, th- this cuts across all demographics, all income levels. Uh, you know, somebody making 90000 bucks a year all of a sudden loses their job, and two or three months later, they possibly could lose their, their domicile. They've got to feed the family. Uh, all of a sudden, they're knocking on your door. You know, Bill, we have such supports for all different sectors of the community, and it's probably because of that. People know that they're only two or three paychecks away from maybe having to knock on the, on the door of a food bank. But you're right, it crosses over every family composition you can think of. We have singles, we have single parents, two-parent families, couples. It's just unbelievable. And the singles category is probably, and the single parents is so pressing. Single people for the benefits they get is so minor. It is so below a poverty line that it, it's almost impossible to live on. Matter of fact, I would suggest it absolutely is impossible without actually garnering support from all these different programs. Wouldn't it be nice for a gentleman or a woman who's single to have enough just to pay the rent and to feed themselves and then think and plan about where they're going next? But they're always on the, the lookout for how do they feed themselves? What else are they going to need? Because there just isn't the benefit level there. And the benefit level just isn't just about um, uh, people on welfare or people on ODSP. This is our social safety net that's been totally degraded by the province. And if we don't step in, this is our safety net, Canada's safety net, the thing that we talk about, we're proud of, that nobody goes without a home, nobody goes without eating, that we have a, a social safety net here that we can count on. Well, it has massive holes in it. And part of what a lot of the anti-poverty organizations are saying is, is this isn't just about that target group. It's really about sewing up those holes in the safety net so everybody's boat is lifted, everyone's. And it's not. It's. I know that you know. We we heard the term back in the mid nineteen nineties: welfare bums, malingerers, etc. Uh, there, these are this a large segment of the people that you see at food banks, and a large number of the people that are looking for affordable housing right now are what we call the working poor. They have jobs, sometimes two jobs, sometimes three jobs, and they're trying to make ends meet. And as the cost of living goes up, as the cost of housing goes up, as the cost of food goes up, it's they're, they're falling farther and farther behind. They are like we were very proud to say that we're a uh, you know a uh, employer that employs people at a living wage. Absolutely, you can't go out in the community and profess to help people if your own people are suffering. So we we make sure that that, that is a, a minimum standard for us. We uh, so many times go past that, but I can tell you too that children shouldn't be standing in line at a food bank. They should be all playing. You know what I mean? And, and it's heartbreaking to see that. Uh, I think that. Um, I think that rhetoric has changed a little bit. I can tell you this. Nobody says that to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Nobody comes <laughs> and says that anymore because we don't take it anymore. We're not going to sit and be polite about it, that these are children. 38% of the people who come to a food bank are children. That doesn't even apply to children. Um, another um, uh, huge percentage um, are on disability. 34% are on disability who are unable to work. There are all kinds of people who are employed. Uh, we talk to people all the time of just because you have a job, it doesn't mean you're not going to need any you know, emergency food supports. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, you are right. And I think the conversation is changing. Well, you can't get too down about where you're at right now, but you certainly can say we could be a lot further down that road if we synergize all the supports, if we can actually work together as a community. And I think this fund is probably going to be the starting point where we can move forward from that. Well, Council's got an opportunity, I guess, uh, with this initiative from the mayor to try to do something about it. We'll see how they respond. Joanne, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. Wonderful talking to you, too. Take care. Joanne Santucci, of course, uh, Executive Director of Hamilton Food Share. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.